The Hamlet Podcast, episode 29. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth, with me your host, Connor Hanrity. We begin Act 3 of the play this week, and while it's very rare that one gets a sense of act breaks happening during any performance of a Shakespeare play, since the scenes usually run from one to the next, we do get a little sense now that some time has passed. The stage directions tell us that we are once again in Fores, site of some of the earlier scenes of the play. Fores was the seat of Duncan's castle, and now it seems that Mr and Mrs Macbeth have moved in, since they are now King and Queen of Scotland. By the end of the previous scene, even Macduff was convinced that Duncan had been assassinated by his groomsmen, and that his sons looked highly suspicious in their flight and that they were surely involved. The only person who might have any concept of the scale of Macbeth's ambition is Banquo, and at last we get to hear a little of what he might be thinking as he opens this new scene. He has a short soliloquy, seemingly addressing Macbeth from a distance. Thou hast it now. King, Cawdor, Glams, all as the weird women promised, and, I fear, thou playedst most foully for it. Yet it was said it should not stand in thy posterity, but that myself should be the root and father of many kings. If there come truth from them, as upon thee, Macbeth, their speeches shine, why, by the verities on thee made good, May they not be my oracles as well, and set me up in hope. But hush, no more. Banquo is the only other person who heard the witches and their prophecies. They proclaimed Macbeth, Thane of Glams, and Cawdor, and eventual king. And, as Banquo notes, he has it all now, all as they promised. But Banquo's troubled. He's wondering if Macbeth intervened and perhaps helped destiny along. In a clever echo of fair and foul, heard so often already in the text, Banquo says he fears Macbeth played foully for it. So here we get fear and foul instead. Macbeth now has the crown, but did he play dirty for it? Did he kill the king? Interestingly, Banquo is not sharing this concern with anyone else, and he shows us why as he continues. The witches may have promised the crown to Macbeth, but they didn't say that he would pass it on. It was said it should not stand in his posterity. In other words, he won't have any children who follow him onto the throne. Instead, it's Banquo who will be the root and father of many kings, and we get the image of a family tree, with Banquo as the root, and by extension the father, which is a sage political move here from Shakespeare, since it would again have reminded King James, in the audience, of the story of Banquo being his ancestor. Even if it was just a story, it was a flattering one. So Banquo is compromised. If everything the witches said is already coming true for Macbeth, Surely it is also going to happen for him. So why rock the newly settled boat? If all these things the weird women promised are coming true, verities is a charmingly old-fashioned word for truths, 
Well then, why shouldn't Banquo hope that their prophecies or oracles will come true for him too? If there come truth from them, as upon thee, Macbeth, their speeches shine, why, by the verities on thee made good, may they not be my oracles as well, and set me up in hope? Before he can go any further, Banquo shuts himself up, saying, Hush, no more, because the new royal cohort is about to enter. We get a new sound now. This play is full of drums and colours and trumpets and noises, and now the text calls for a senate to sound. This is a very specific trumpet flourish for only extremely high-status characters. Given that Duncan's entries were all with oboys or less flashy flourishes, we are perhaps being invited to wonder whether this is an excessive display by the self-conscious new king. Perhaps his robes still feel a bit borrowed. There's a whole backstory to when Shakespeare started thinking about senates, most likely imported from Italy, and when, where and why they appear in his stage directions. It's probably too much of a digression for us here, but I'll put a digest of it all in the show notes. Suffice to say, a big flourish of trumpets announces the arrival of Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, and their attendant lords and ladies, among them Lennox and Ross. Bearing in mind how nothing in this tightly constructed play is accidental, pay attention to how much they make of Banquo's importance at their feast. Macbeth says, here's our chief guest. Macbeth is already announcing Banquo's seniority and names him chief guest here at Forres, and the lady completes his line with even more information. If he had been forgotten, it had been as a gap in our great feast, and all thing unbecoming. Lady Macbeth proved herself an expert at this complimentary language when she welcomed Duncan to her castle at Inverness. Perhaps we should be nervous for anyone she welcomes so warmly, but here she insists that if Banquo was forgotten or overlooked, it would be a most unbecoming gap in their guest list. All thing is a weird little turn of phrase here, meaning something like thoroughly or absolutely. Macbeth explains, Tonight we hold a solemn supper, sir, and I'll request your presence. There will be a fancy dinner tonight, and Macbeth sincerely hopes that Banquo will be there. Banquo replies, Let your highness command upon me, to the which my duties are with a most indissoluble tie forever knit. Yet more of this excessive language. Courtly life in this version of Scotland must have been exhausting with all of these formal code-switching conversations. Banquo was saying, very elaborately, that he is at Macbeth's command, and that there is an unbreakable bond, or an indissoluble tie, forever knit between them. We in the audience can infer that this might be a nod to their shared experience on the heath with the witches, but to anyone else it sounds like amicable, formal politeness. Macbeth asks, Ride you this afternoon? And Banquo answers, Aye, my good lord. Banquo will be out on his horse today. Macbeth continues, We should have else desired your good advice, which still hath been both grave and prosperous in this day's council, but we'll take tomorrow. Is far you ride? 
Evidently, Banquo is a valued member of Macbeth's council. If he wasn't out riding this afternoon, Macbeth would have asked for his good advice in whatever they're discussing today. Banquo has proven grave and prosperous in his contributions, a serious thinker and one whose advice has led to good or prosperous outcomes. But, Macbeth is saying, tomorrow will be fine, the business can wait until then. Some productions choose to have Macbeth say, we'll talk tomorrow, but this seems far too easy and contemporary. Macbeth moves on, wondering where Banquo is going. Ist far you ride? Of course, he could be merely making conversation, but even this casual question has menace in it. Macbeth wants to know where everyone is at all times, especially someone with compromising information like Banquo. Banquo replies, As far, my lord, as will fill up the time twixt this and supper. Go not my horse the better, I must become a borrower of the night for a dark hour or twain. Banquo is nobody's fool. He gives quite a vague answer. He'll be going on a round trip as far as he and his horse can manage in the time between now and dinner. If his horse doesn't go as well as he hopes, he'll be stuck out after sundown and have to return for a dark hour or two. Or twain. But clearly he is intending to be back for this supper. Which is just as well, since Macbeth then is very direct and he says, Fail not our feast. And Banquo replies, My lord, I will not. This is great fodder for actors, since there are so many ways to explore the dynamic between the two apparent friends. There is menace afoot, but neither quite wants to antagonise the other just yet. So they keep it very civil, with all these dark currents flowing underneath. Macbeth changes the subject to Duncan's runaway sons. We hear our bloody cousins are bestowed in England and in Ireland, not confessing their cruel parricide, filling their hearers with strange invention. But of that tomorrow, when therewithal we shall have cause of state craving us jointly. Hie you to horse, adieu, till you return at night. Goes Fleance with you. This is straight out of the fascist's playbook. Once the lie is constructed, you have to push it, especially when you know full well that it's not true. Macbeth knows better than anyone that Duncan's sons didn't kill him, but he's still happy to call them his bloody cousins. They were indeed related, and to share the news that he's heard that they fled to England and Ireland. This happened very recently, but already Macbeth is up to date. They haven't confessed to the parricide, which is the crime of killing a parent, not least because they didn't do it. But Macbeth knows how powerful doubt can be, and so he insists that the two men are filling their hearers with strange invention. He doesn't bother to share what stories they might be telling, settling instead to describe them as strange and therefore weird or untrustworthy fantasies or inventions. In other words, they are murderers, and now they're abroad telling lies, so they must be discredited. Macbeth is telling Banquo this, but insists that they'll speak of it further tomorrow, when they will also have to discuss some state business that will require both of them to be there. Perhaps it isn't critically urgent, since he's all right with Banquo going out for this afternoon of riding. 
Hie you to horse, he says. Off you go. Adieu till you return at night. It's all very cordial still. And then another little question, with another chill of a threat in it. Is Fleance, Banquo's son, going too? Aye, my good lord, our time does call upon us. Yes, Banquo says, and the clock is ticking. Time is calling on them. If they don't head out, it'll be dark and they'll get nowhere. So Macbeth lays off and wishes them well. He says, I wish your horses swift and sure of foot, and so I do command you to their backs. Farewell. Macbeth hopes that the horses will be fast and safe, and sends Banquo and Fleance out for a pleasant ride. Once Banquo, and Fleance, if he's on stage, is gone, Macbeth dismisses everyone else. Let every man be master of his time till seven at night. To make society the sweeter welcome, we will keep ourself till supper time alone. While then, God be with you. I really like this little description. Everyone is free to decide what to do between now and seven in the evening, presumably when this supper will be served. And Macbeth then speaks the gospel of introverts everywhere. To make the experience of company all the sweeter and more welcome when it comes, he will keep to himself alone until dinner. To make society the sweeter welcome, we will keep ourself till supper time alone. To conclude the speech, Shakespeare gives Macbeth a tiny hint of a Scottish or northern dialect. Apparently back then, while was used in the north of that great island to mean until. It's a tiny piece of local colour, but I kind of like it. This doesn't appear to be a play written to be performed in Scottish accents, and I am happy to report I don't think I've ever seen a company of non-Scots even attempt to perform it in dodgy accents, but it is nice to see the occasional little nod. Once Macbeth has wished God be with you to everyone present, including his wife, there's a sense that they are all dismissed, and that he wants to be alone. No surprise that this means there's a soliloquy coming, but we'll wait until next time to get into that. Do be sure to have a look at the website, thehamletpodcast.com, for the fascinating tale of the Senate and the stage directions. I want to thank you for the lovely emails that continue to come in from all over the world, and this week even from as far away as Western Australia. It's lovely to hear from you, and it makes me very happy to know that you're enjoying the podcast. I'll be back next week with the next episode, and I hope you'll join me then.